let's go aural literacy aural um, yeah <laughs> aural Hello, and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast where we talk about pop culture through the lens of education and where we not only make sure you do your homework, but we hope that we make uh, doing your homework actually fun. Uh, I'm Pete Romberg. With me is my fellow co-host. I'm Martha Sullivan, and before I give my customary episode title, uh, did I crow about my escape room on the last episode? Because I would hate to repeat myself. You talked about planning it, but I don't think you had executed it. Yes. So I am Martha Sullivan, uh, escape room architect and game master. Everything <laughs> went very well, in case you were wondering. Excellent. Very good to hear. Joining us this week is... Our special guest. Whose name is... Oh, is, yeah. is that is Introduce that yourself. Okay, I... <laughs> wasn't sure if I was supposed to come in there. My name is Dan Carlin. How, how is everyone doing? Good. How are you tonight? I am wonderful. Thank you. Martha, thank by, you so uh, much for... Oh, yes. Thank you for having me. By Escape Room Architect, does that mean you created your own escape room? I did. I had a an escape room library program last Saturday, which I held for uh, four teens ended up coming and they solved the puzzle or they solved the room with three seconds left on the clock. I was extremely proud of them. Clearly you have some good teens and you made a good escape room. So kudos to everybody involved. Well, me and one of my coworkers put it together from scratch by ourselves. So we were pretty proud of it. That's pretty awesome. Uh, Dan, how would you uh, introduce yourself in a quick um, I am a photographer, podcaster, father, jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah, you want to do a quick plug for your show? Uh, sure, if you're offering. I uh, I host a podcast by the name of Sewell Radio. You can find it on iTunes and SoundCloud. Uh, this podcast and I follow each other, so you can find me through there. Lots of interviews, lots of uh, lots of talking of nonsense. Good times had by all. Cool. Well, yeah, thanks again for uh, being our guest third chair for this episode. Thank um, you for having me. I'm honored. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're going to start, as usual, with our pop culture credentials. This is the last piece of media that we've consumed unedited for quality or guilty pleasure factor. Uh, Martha, I'm going to start with you. What is your pop culture credential for this episode? Okay, so it's not very exciting because I got home from work about a half an hour before we started recording. Um, I came home. I scooped dinner out of the slow cooker uh, where it had been sitting all night. And I played a couple rounds of a cell phone game Um that is my new, I, I do this to, to kill time, auto-clicky type game called Love Nikki. It is a dress-up fashion, uh, I believe it is a Korean-based uh, KRPG, sort of. It's a dress-up doll game. Uh, I get to dress a cute little cartoon girl up in different outfits and get scored on them and win coins to buy new outfits. So that's that's the last thing that I did before this podcast. I didn't even know that was a genre, but I'm also not in the slightest bit surprised that that's a genre. Oh, no, don't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a thing that could happen on a smartphone. <laughs> Dan, how about you? What is the last piece of media that you've consumed? Well, I ran out of milk which, you know, my, my kids require for living. And so I went to the store, and on the way home, I was listening to Always on Time, the uh, the 2002 classic by Ja Rule and Ashanti. Ooh. Uh, my Ja Rule and Ashanti is mostly based on their appearance on the Hamilton mixtape. That, like, I know of them as a pop culture thing, but I don't know their music as well, other than that one appearance 
on the Hamilton mixtape. I wasn't aware that they were on the Hamilton mixtape, and now I absolutely have to check it out. <laughs> they do. Um... I had trouble. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. No, what number do they do? Um, the uh, uh, Eliza Hamilton um, wed- uh, pre-wedding meet at the dance song. Oh, um, helpless. Helpless. Yes, thank you. I had trouble with the mixtape for one reason and one reason only, which does not preclude me liking it. It was just a completely different animal than I was expecting. It is not so much a mixtape as it is we maybe heard about Hamilton and used some of those uh, beats and created something entirely new. So when I, I listened to it, I started listening to it but I started listening to it when I wanted to be listening to Hamilton mm-hmm. and it is too different for that to be a satisfying experience. So I do need to revisit it, it knowing kind of what to expect this time. Low hanging fruit here. You weren't satisfied. Um, oh, Peter. <laughs> uh, I, I will say that the chance and Francis uh, doing um, Dear Theodosia, which is the album Closure, is very pretty i'm looking at the track list now apparently buster rhymes does a rendition of my shot i i that's worth price of admission alone (laughs) wonderful all right well for myself um i have been listening basically off and on all day to the new lcd sound system album american dream uh this actually dropped about a month and a half ago um and it's something that's been on not constant rotation for me, but sort of it, it'll come on, you know, once a week, twice a week or something. Um, but the very last uh, track on that album is like a 13 minute uh, kind of ode, R.I.P. Uh, elegy to Bowie. And um, I just read a very uh, moving story this afternoon about David Bowie right after I had listened to that song. Uh, called Black Screen, and so after that I was sort of like just deep in the weeds of listening to LCD Sound System, and specifically uh, the most recent album, American Dream. So you're feeling a lot of feelings right now. I'm, yeah, feeling a lot of feelings, lots of Bowie feelings. I might have also listened to like a couple Bowie albums earlier in the day, so, uh, Oh, don't let me forget, it's not relevant right now but it will be relevant later in the episode. I have a tiny little Bowie anecdote um, that will become relevant. Delightful. Sweet. Also, that sounds to me like a fantastic segue to the episode. (laughs) Um, So today we're going to be talking about um, sound and sound design in film and television. Uh, We're going to be starting off just with some sort of Uh, As usual, we're going to be starting off with a quick rundown of our three homework assignments, uh, and then we're going to get into some more nitty-gritty questions. We're going to start off with some basic terminology, specifically around the idea of diegetic and non-diegetic sounds. Uh, This is an idea that's going to crop up a lot in this episode, so we just want to set the table, go over what those exactly are. We've never done anything quite this technical before, so we want to make sure that everybody listening is speaking the same language, as it were. Yes, definitely. Uh, this is definitely going to lean a lot further into uh, like film theory, film analysis than uh, we've ever usually done on the show. So after we get, we set the table and make sure that the terms are all uh, understood, we're going to be talking about how music uh, can underscore or indicate a tone or a mood. We're going to be exploring how filmmakers use not only sound, but also silence, or at least a lack of score. Um... We're going to be talking about, uh, often in education, there's the idea of visual literacy. We're going to expand that and talk about aural literacy. How, What exactly should we be looking for uh, when we're trying to teach kids how to listen to a film or a TV show? Um, and then finally, we're going to be uh, talking about how sound, uh, music or otherwise, is used to bring surprise or to uh, subvert expectations. So that's the roadmap of where we're going with the episode. Uh, But before we tackle all those questions, uh, we'll do just a real quick rundown of our three assignments and what we all thought about them. Uh, Martha, you chose a single episode near the end of a season of a TV show. 
How about you kick us off? I assigned for you guys an episode of the Ryan Murphy helmed TV series American Horror Story, uh, specifically an episode from season two, uh, which is the Asylum season. Uh, American Horror Story is an anthology season, so or is an anthology show. So every season has a different uh, premise, a different conceit, a different cast of characters. Um, in this season, we are in an insane asylum or sanitarium in the 1960s, I believe. Um, there are a bunch of things happening, um, a bunch of characters, some who, uh, you know, maybe should be seeking mental care. I hesitate to say deserve to be in the asylum because this is during one of those periods where being in an asylum was tantamount to being in prison only with, uh, you know, medically sanctioned torture. Um, and then some characters like Sarah Paulson are there for malicious reasons or accidental reasons. Uh, this particular episode is episode number 10. Uh, it does come towards the end of the season. Uh, and uh, it is called The Name Game. And the reason I picked it is because of the song interlude featuring Jessica Lange uh, that comes at about the two-thirds mark of the episode. Uh, Jessica Lange's character is a nun or a former nun that used to be in a position of power in the asylum. Um, and at this point that we see her has been uh, taken down through the machinations of Lily Rabe's character, who in this episode you also find out is possessed by the devil. Uh, that is sort of not germane to this current conversation. Um, but what I really want to talk about is the uh, jukebox scene where Jessica Lange's character puts on the song The Name Game, which is by a musical group. It's a song that I didn't even know was, like, an official song that you could buy the album of, but it's the classic Anna Banna Bonana Fee Fi Fo Fana thing, which everyone just knows. It is an American pop song written and performed by Shirley Ellis, originally released in 1964. Uh, this moment in the episode serves as an incredibly surreal, almost hallucinogenic moment, because... You are still in the scene of the asylum, only now Jessica Lange is in like a glitzy uh, costume and is uh, jazzed and coherent and performing, where moments ago she was just coming off of shock treatment. Uh, and the whole thing is just very clearly, this is a moment that she is hallucinating. Having seen no American Horror Story thus far, I was glad at how quickly I was able to jump in and be like, oh, yeah, this is just like, yeah, she's possessed by the devil. Cool. He's a Nazi doctor with zombie experiments. Great. Um, it, I guess it helps. This is the second Ryan Murphy show you've assigned in a very short amount of time. Uh, and I just... know. I'm <laughs> sorry, but I'm not. <laughs> it's helpful to be in the mind space. <laughs> Upon watching it, I also have never seen a American Horror Story up to this point, but it proves my idea that nobody does Sinister quite the way that James Cromwell does. And his character is? His character is Arthur. Ah, Arden. Dr. Arden. Is he yes. the Nazi doctor? Yes. Okay. Yeah, one of the things that I like about Ryan Murphy, well, actually, it's one of the things that I'm very conflicted about with Ryan Murphy, is that his material is not subtle. So <laughs> no, frequently, no, no, no. like, you don't, you don't really need to have been with American Horror Story the whole time to know, like, to get what the big beats are. Like, as you say, it's like, oh, it's obvious we have the devil and a nun and all this other stuff going on. Um so yeah, let's let's get rolling. Right, it's, it, um, it uses tropes, but not in a way that feels like reductive or negative. Like it's like, yo, you know the trope of like exorcism priest and nuns. Like, yep, know that trope. You know the the trope of Nazi doctor experiments. Yep, great, slot it in. Um, yeah, I think one of the big weaknesses, uh, particularly as American Horror Story becomes longer lived, is that. It's very much a throw it at the wall and see what sticks. Mm -hmm. 
or rather everything but the kitchen sink because it's just it's just all in there like there's no there's no editing that happens <laughs> sure sure uh, uh, well, Dan, any other thoughts on uh, your initial take on American Horror Story before we dive into your uh, homework? Yeah, I do appreciate how the score very much carried a lot of the emotion throughout the episode itself. Um, you know, in, uh, for example, the Nazi doctor points the gun to himself, the, the score fades out while you don't quite know what's going to happen. It very much, uh, it accentuated the emotion that was already there without overdoing it. Mm-hmm. Well, and thanks for bringing that up. I think it was AV Club recently had a, like, basically listicle of um, movie or a, a television show uh, intro, I guess not songs, but like sequences, title sequences uh, that they really liked. Uh, this coming on the heels of the new Netflix skip intro uh, option. And one of them singled out this specific season of American Horror Story as being an exceptional um, intro sequence. I gotta tell you, I skip the American Horror Story intros because I find the music that plays under the intro credits to it, it wigs me out harder than like the stuff in the episodes. Yeah, like, like it... not even the not even the creepy visual stuff, just like the like the really hard staccato. And the, um, it's not even music. Like, it just sounds like a lot of creepy doors opening and stuff happening. And it, I can't, I can't do it. It, it did a great <laughs> job for me of, like, setting the mood. Because it's like, oh, disturbing imagery and really disturbing sounds. Um, yes. And, and here's American Horror Story. Plus there's an ambient noise throughout basically the entire episode that, you know, it combines with the music. Sometimes the ambience is just there combined with the echo in most people's voices that just overall went to the, I don't know, for lack of, be of, a, of a better phrase, creep factor of it all. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of overlapping voices, um, which I think ends up contributing a lot to the feeling of chaos in the asylum, like the feeling of this is a lot of scary people who are not under a whole lot of control. Um, yeah, when there's not music happening, it's, it's a lot of overlapping voices, overlapping ambient sound, um, that just kind of becomes this big mess. Yeah. Um, Dan, you assigned Mulholland Drive. I did. I did. I assigned the 2001 David Lynch film Mulholland Drive. The story about an actress named Betty, or is it Diane? Who knows? Uh, comes to Hollywood in search of fame and, and success. There is a heavy amount of seemingly unrelated vignette stories that happen throughout the movie that kind of tie in at the end, arguably. It also plays with the ideas of dreams and reality and fantasy and psychosis it's it's a hard film to put into a 30 second synopsis um i'm having a hell of a time doing it right now but <laughs> yeah what why did you what drew you to this as um since since this was uh both your theme the idea of talking about sound design and then your pick what was the thing that sort of drew you um to choosing maholland drive well, we were talking off the record about the new Twin Peaks series, which was my first real foray into David Lynch, and now I'm on kind of a kick with him now because I had heard that, you know, his past films very much inspired the new series, you know, Eraserhead, uh, Blue Velvet, oh, those are so good. Mulholland Drive, and... So I watched Mulholland Drive for the first time about a year ago, and I saw the various obvious, the, the obvious influence, including just the very focused sound design. Like, every sound there is for a reason. 
especially when you're playing with dreams and reality the way that he does. Like you need a very careful transition. So, um, you know, that's what fascinates me probably the most about Lynch. So I figured I would choose something from his catalog. It, it's interesting uh, watching the new Twin Peaks. Lynch has this like reputation for creating um, sort of disturbing or strange films. And watching the new Twin Peaks, I realized that I think the number one thing that's disturbing and weird, like he has weird imagery in, in everything he does, but really it's the sound design in everything he does that's really often off-putting um, or, or just overwhelming but in a background way. Um, and, and Mulholland Drive, I think, had a lot of that. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, going back to ambience, just the the ambient noises you'll hear when you're, I guess, supposedly transferring between dimensions and how that becomes a seamless transition is very much attributed to the sound design. Mm-hmm. So I found a really cool quote. I did some reading about Mulholland Drive uh, sort of geared towards the audio but just kind of about the movie in general because I had a very hard time with it I'm not usually a fan of uh, film that gets this sort of nihilistic and abstract Um, but the uh, quote that I found is from John Neff who is the Mulholland Drive sound designer was basically um, and I'm going to read some of it but basically the gist of it is David Lynch wants what David Lynch gets Mm. And that being a sound designer on a project of his is basically Lynch telling you exactly what he wants, whether or not that is a sound that currently exists in the world and <laughs> working until working until you craft it. <laughs> so the Sounds quote is, yeah. uh, David is, of course, very hands on in the sound department. He's the sound designer for the movie. He conceptualizes things and says, I need it to sound like a 30 ton piece of metal being scraped across a polished piece of smooth granite. Well, you have to imagine in your mind how that's going to sound. Then you have to go make it out of things that exist in the everyday real world. Uh, but he directs, he's an act and react guy. You come up with something you think might get you started on that path. And then he goes, okay, no, it's got to be lower. It's got to be slower. It's got to have this more reverb. So he directs the creation of the sound like he directs the picture. Um, yeah. Hearing... So basically he, he conceptualizes the sound that he wants delivers that to his sound designer and then they have to handcraft it out of things that exist in the real world. No one ever described him as an easy person to work with. (laughs) No, I just thought that that was fascinating because I think that you're right. Every choice that he makes both visually and auditorily is clearly very deliberate. Um, I may not always be on board with the mood that he's trying to create, but he has a very specific vision Um, and my impression is that in general, things come out the way that he wants them to. Yes. He's very deliberate, but also very by the seat of your pants when he feels it's necessary. Mm -hmm. Like I, I remember hearing that he gave what was initially an extra, like several lines, uh, in some episode, I couldn't tell you which one offhand, but he was just one of the the background cops, and he ended up having an entire scene of dialogue hmm. just the day of. One of the things that I was very struck by in this movie, and I'm going to talk about again, Pete, when we get to your homework, was the use of silence. Or not even silence, but the willingness to not have any background noise. Mm-hmm. And I think that this says something about kind of the the school of film craft now because i'm just not used to having scenes in movies that are not underscored by any music at all and i actually found it to be pretty unnerving almost in a like well how do i know how to feel about this unless (laughs) there's music there telling me which makes me sound dumber than i am but it is something that i have gotten accustomed to and to have like whole scenes pass without music i thought was very striking and sort of a um almost something that dated his work 
more than even the very early 2000s visuals. <laughs> Which I I love watching early 2000s, late 90s stuff, like the first season of The West Wing, because the suits are just so baggy. They're so big. So big. They're so big. <laughs> <laughs> they don't look good on anyone. Um, There's definitely an aesthetic about, like, 98 through 2002. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, Martha, you're, you're completely right that, like, we as an audience have been trained that, like, when the strings swell, we're, like... Yay, that's a good moment. Um, but when there's no music at all, it's like, wait, is this a good... What's going on? They're just talking? Um, and I, I think that says a lot more to just, as you said, the way that we... that, Especially big blockbuster movies um, and, and shows mimicking that have transitioned to constant underlying music. It, it's funny, like, I had a completely different experience growing up with that. Like, I grew up on The Sopranos, which, you know, it's, came up in the late 90s, but did not have a score whatsoever. Like, every sound within that series is completely diegetic. And because of that, and just the fact that it was my favorite series of all time, like, that was my bar. That was, in my opinion, well, that's the way it should be. Huh. So you you've obviously seen enough shows and movies and stuff that I'm I'm sure that you're not like wigged out by constant soundtracks, right? Yeah, no, I've I've seen enough films where you know with scores and soundtracks where it doesn't strike me as odd, but the idea of silence throughout a scene doesn't phase me one way or the other. Sure. Just real fast, and we'll get back to this, I'm sure. But I also wanted to just briefly mention how I think uh, David Lynch also uses the expectation that music will underscore the tone of a scene to trick his audience. Because mm -hmm. he has several scenes where the music playing does not tonally line up with what is happening on screen. Mm-hmm. Either to underscore like the dreamlike nature of what's happening, or I think there's one scene in particular when um, the director comes home to find his wife in bed with another man, and the music is very like jaunty and almost chipper. I was also going to which... use the word jaunty to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I think is almost just underlining how absurd he finds the whole sequence. Um. So I, I did appreciate how, how Lynch is also using not just the absence of sound, but oh, not incorrect sound, but like unexpected music mm -hmm. to make a point, uh, to make some kind of narrative point. Well, uh, about two thirds of the way through, he kind of lampshades the whole idea of like sound and, and, and music being artificial in films. With the whole, like, the band is silent sequence, um, mm -hmm. where it's all pre-recorded instrumentation and people uh, lip-syncing to it or, you know, fake playing instruments looking real but actually being pre-recorded. Um, so he's very sort of on the nose with it in that sense. Yeah, he does announce in that scene very explicitly beforehand, like, there is no band. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what it is. That, not the band is silent. There is no band. All right, well, I'm going to jump over to my homework then. Um, in honor of the new Blade Runner coming out this month, I assigned the original Blade Runner 1982 film directed by Ridley Scott, starring Harrison Ford and Sean Young, among others. This one I chose for two reasons. The first is that the Vangelis score is... Unlike anything anyone else has done other than Vangelis, who did Chariots of Fire and uh, the original Carl Sagan Cosmos, and that's about it, I think, um, it's very futuristic sounding, um, but also very, like, noir and saxophony sounding. Um, and also because a lot of the, sa like, as Martha, you identified, there's lots of silence in the movie, especially mm -hmm. when you should think there should be, like, music going on. Um, the ambient sound is pervasive and there are uh, a number of key sequences where the sound, like the, the music seems at odd with the scene that's happening. 
And specifically, I'm thinking when when um, Zora is killed, that should be a big action set piece or something, but it's a very sad song that Vangelis plays. Um, Pete, I'm going to pause you. I'm going to pause you real fast. Yep. Uh, Blade Runner is a movie about Harrison Ford, who is a cop who's been hired to hunt down rogue robots and quote-unquote retire them, which actually means kill them. Great. Thank you uh, for... He goes through a he goes through a crisis of, I guess, not identity, but he has a realization that maybe the things that he is hunting are actually people, uh, particularly when he decides that he is in love with Sean Young's character, and depending on which version you see, um, escapes with her in some manner away from his uh, job duties and in order to not have to kill her, uh, her character. Um, and, and just as a quick clarification there, not that they're actually people, but that they're actually, um, people-ish. <laughs> like, 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 uh, not, not humans, but individuals. They're robots. Yeah. Um, thank you for that quick film synopsis, because I just <laughs> go right into the meat of it. <laughs> there we go. Well, and, and so at that point, I'll, I'll open it up and say, uh, ask what were your thoughts on Blade Runner? I think you both have seen it before. Um, Martha, I, I know that saw... you saw it right after seeing the new movie. I saw Blade Runner for the first time when I was a freshman in high school. Uh, it was not my favorite thing in the world. Uh, so I had not seen it until I, yeah, I went to see the new one. Um, and then a couple of days after that, I watched the original flavor for this podcast. So it had been a long time. Um... I appreciate it, I guess, without really being sure that I liked it. Um, a lot of the things that I feel about it now are kind of tied up with how I felt about the sequel, mm -hmm. uh, which I don't know if that is fair or not. Um, I enjoyed the sequel quite a bit, although I think that it trades on emotional weight that the original one doesn't earn, uh, which is a discussion for a different theme, I think. Um but yeah, mostly, again, I was very struck by the the lack of, particularly when compared to the new one, uh, which is scored very more, very much more, um, I would say. Hans Zimmery? Uh, not even that, just more what I would expect from a big sci-fi genre film. Like it has, it is a, it is a bigger film than the original. Like it is bigger visually, it is bigger auditorily. I think the story tries to be bigger. I think whether it succeeds or not is a, a topic of, for further discussion. Um, but yeah, seeing the original, which is much more street level, uh, it's got a lot of ambient street sounds, a lot of, um, like restaurant noises bikes moving around shatter like breaking glass uh stuff the, the like that that's sort of gets in woven, every single scene which all gets kind of woven into the soundtrack in a really interesting way i found it admirable especially upon this viewing of the film how seamlessly the music fades in and out for you know the the ambient sounds to to they're almost accented by the music not being there all the time but being there as much as it is mm -hmm. i was kind of wondering and i think that i would have to watch them both again particularly paying attention for this um i was wondering if i could hear watching the original any places where the sequel quotes the soundtrack i, I can tell you exactly one yeah, it's at the okay. end, the Tears in the Rain song, which is the song that plays when Roy Batty dies at the end and gives his little monologue, Is also plays at the end of 2049. Okay, and that I do think we should not spoil, because it's only been in theaters for like a week. Agreed. Uh, I've yet to see it. The only okay. thing that I will spoil, and, you know, don't at me, uh... Deckard is not a replicant. He has never been a replicant. You cannot convince me that he is. I don't care how hard the movie works to do so. That is all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> no, not, not. Oh, oh, 
but I just remembered my David Bowie anecdote. Yes. So this is really fast. Um, so Jared Leto shows up for 12 minutes in the sequel, and I was very disappointed that I got tricked into seeing a Jared Leto film. Apparently, his role was originally supposed to have been played by David Bowie. I, no kidding. I, I, I saw it with my brother, um, and he told me that after the movie, and we were both like, would have been a better movie. Oh, yes. No, everything is better when you detract Jared Leto from it. And add David Subtract Bowie Jared to Leto it. from it. Jared Leto will always be the cornrow uh, house robber from Panic Room to me. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Like, no matter what he does, that's just what he is forever in my mind. <laughs> Let's transition from from the homeworks proper to sort of our discussion questions. Um, Dan, you've already mentioned one of these terms already, but I just want to set the table a little bit and uh, explain diegetic and non-diegetic sound. Um, Let's do it. Uh, and, and so my understanding is that diegetic sound or music is sound or music that would appear in the scene. So um, if you're set in a car the radio, the, the music that's on in the radio is the diegetic sound. Uh, Non-diegetic sound then is anything else. So if you're in the car and you're not listening to a music, so a movie soundtrack, and the movie soundtrack is playing, uh, that would be a non-diegetic sound. Um, yeah, but... it's this. It's the sound. It's the sound and music that we, as the audience, hear, but the characters in the movie do not. Right. Um, so all three of our medias used diegetic and non-diegetic sounds pretty, uh, strategically. Um, how does it contribute, and, and I guess in this case, mostly diegetic sound, how can it help contribute to the mood or the tone, uh, of something? And, and Martha, this seems like a perfect jumping off point for your, the name game, uh, sequence. Well, I thought it was really interesting that we all picked media where there's a question at some point, whether it's, you know, pervasive through the whole thing or just in like a scene to scene basis. Uh, but the question of what's real or not um, in the name game, the song that Judy, Jessica Lang's character plays on the jukebox, the name game song is diegetic from the jukebox but her whole sequence of performing it with all of the inmates at the asylum is not so you get well actually does it count as diegetic if it's a hallucination uh i mean that that would because it's not part of the soundtrack at that point but it's also not real quasi diegetic (laughs) (laughs) it's diegetic within the dimension it takes place in because, yeah, it's a hallucination that Judy is having, so it's within, it's happening within her mind, not sort of outside the cinematic space. Right, but within, like, the, the audio is diegetic, but the visual is certainly not, if, like, because the visual is, is her hallucination. Have... And then you have the very mournful violins that play to underscore the tragedy of Sister Mary, who is... Uh, Lily Rabe's character, who is the nun that has been defiled and possessed by the devil. Which is strongly non-diegetic sound. Very non-diegetic. And then obviously Mulholland Drive is is rife with this of diegetic and non-diegetic. And um, the big one there is sort of the the uh, woman singing the song that's pre-recorded. But even though it's pre-recorded, we do get to hear her sing. Um, and that's a big David Lynch thing. The having a person and specifically a woman sing a song uh in in your movie and it'd be very pretty i actually had a very hard time with mulholland drive deciding i guess what was sort of diegetic and what was happening outside of the reality of the film (laughs) and i don't know if that was just me being i don't know if that was just me being kind of thick or if that was as intentional as i hope that it was um but there's a lot of music in that movie that I think kind of fades in and out between existing within the reality of the movie and not. I think that's very intentional. I My, my read of Mulholland Drive is it's a big old dream, and so anything up until the blue box is like, it. it's both. 
Yeah, that I'm, my interpretation is Diane created her own reality to assuage her guilt for putting a hit out on her friend. Slash lover. Yeah, slash lover. <laughs> it's not a race, the, the queer narrative that's happening here. <laughs> right. Um, my, my deepest apologies, you guys. Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> um, it's, it's got that kind of dreamlike indication you know in american horror story it's a hallucination in a mulholland drive it is presumably a dream state of some kind Mm -hmm. or like a wish fulfillment state um i read it as like betty being diane's kind of wish fulfillment not hallucination but daydream almost like this is what she wishes for this is what she thinks about like as her could have happened. Yeah, definitely. So with that in place, that idea of diegetic and non-diegetic, we're already sort of shifting in this direction, but like how are we using music to um, either underscore, indicate, or even subvert the tone? Um, And I think, Martha, you already hit that a little bit with Mulholland Drive, where there's the idea of you're not sure whether the music is diegetic or non-diegetic and it's all a little bit gauzy and it's fading in and out. And that's kind of the mood and the tone that the movie is going for because it's trying to convey sort of a dreamlike quality. Um, Yeah. I mean, film is a film is a medium and I use film to encompass both movies and TV here. Yeah. Um, It's, it's a, a visual and an auditorial experience. So I think just as what you're seeing on the screen informs how you should be feeling about that. Like the way that things are filmed. Um, I think that Blade Runner does this too, by filming uh, the replicants frequently in sort of a gauzy, um, like a similar kind of gauzy dreamlike state uh, that ends up kind of highlighting uh, baddies, like philosophical discussion at the very end of the movie as being, like a, almost a meditative moment rather than this horror show that's happening. <laughs> um, right. But like music is a music and sound are very, also very closely linked to emotion. Like you can make people feel things by uh, playing certain music, you know, to go back to, to the American horror story violins, like the, the slow, sad, mournful kind of vaguely church, like, uh, sounds are all scored very deliberately to make you feel sad and horrified that these things are happening to Sister Mary and to the priest that the demon inside her is like dedicated to defiling. Well, and we were just joking about how we don't know what to feel if there isn't that sad, mournful violin underneath it. Um, right. <laughs> so not not just that it can, but it often is used very strongly to like to guide the audience into the right. Uh, uh, mood or, or emotion. Well, and in my defense, I'm the one that said that, and it does make me sound like kind of a philistine. But in my defense, going back to David Lynch, like I, I mentioned, that he also uses sound to kind of subvert that expectation. So, without music, it's not always clear, or it can be unclear whether intentionally or not, what the goal of a scene is for like what you're supposed to be taking away from a scene. So I I think that music is another tool that directors can use to indicate like what the, what the goal is, what they want their audience to get out of a scene, because depending on what the music can be like scored very differently, that scene with Batty on the rooftop could have been like a triumphant moment for Deckard. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's a tragic moment. Um, but with the right music, it could have maintained that and maintained a much different emotion. Well, and Dan, I think you might have been writing this note here. Uh, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier in Blade Runner, the scene with Zora's death where like he's chasing her through the streets. There's no music. There is no music up until the point the gunshots ring out and the music fades in. But before that, you can hear a lot of uh, accentuated footsteps, sirens, 
But as she dies, the film cuts to slow motion and the music fades in. The music is ominous yet kind of soothing and it almost softens the blow of her death in a way oh it's it's such a sad song it's like a sad plaintive saxophone riff um that like right out of the 50s or something but like in a modern movie that entire sequence would be set to like some percussive taiko drumming action beat or it would have been slowed way way down and underscored with strings right yeah um but it, it's such a different way to to sort of build the tension is instead of build the tension with music is build the tension by having no music. Um, and then to completely undercut, like, that should be a triumphal moment for Deckard and for the audience because, like, we are rooting for him. He successfully, uh, quote-unquote, retired a replicant. Retired. Um, but instead... It's sad because he went and shot and, someone. <laughs> yeah, frequently I feel like um, film will use the absence of noise to ratchet up tension, mm-hmm. which I think is why it was making me so anxious to have so many scenes that were silent. Like I didn't find it calming or meditative. I found it very, very nerve wracking because it's like, it oh, any minute this, any minute the music is going to start and it's going to be like potentially bad well i'm um I, i'm sure the the i didn't realize how early this happened in maholland drive but the the winky's diner dream sequence with the uh the spooky homeless person at the end uh, where the dude dies of a heart attack like that whole does he se- die yeah maybe oh Who knows? completely <laughs> he has a heart attack i think he dies um but like that whole scene is like no music and then as soon as the the creepy homeless person shows up it's like string you know um i think it is i think it is something that horror film uses a lot like the silence before the jump scare right and and... they don't want to they don't want to let on that the jump scare is coming but then by not using any sound it's like well now i don't know what's happening and that just makes me 10 times as nervous right and in Mulholland Drive, the first instance is kind of a jump scare. And then there's no jump scare for the rest of the movie. Um, but there's lots of silence in the rest of the movie. Yeah, I, I find it even more chaotic uh, within Mulholland Drive. The, the scene with the kind of the pseudo failed hit contains no music in the background. And it, it gives it like it it makes the scene even scene even more chaotic even more clumsy like it shouldn't be happening but it is i did not notice there was no music in that scene and that makes it even better i mean you can't leave witnesses i'm just saying <laughs> oh um so the an, another thing we've got sort of going on here cuz we're we're sort of segueing into subverting expectations um Somebody, I'm not sure who, wrote something on the show notes about um, using um, a lot of overlapping sound. Nope. Uh, oh, that was me. Okay. Yeah, I wrote that note about American Horror Story. Um, I've already kind of... Well, it comes up a couple times. I was thinking about it specifically while I was watching uh, the scene in American Horror Story where Judy is sitting on the couch smoking a cigarette um, trying to remember everybody's names in the uh, in the room, and as they're kind of moving in and out of her sphere of vision, like you get their voices um, amplified as they get closer to her and then kind of fade out. But everyone is talking all at once, and it's all overlapping. And then I think there might be some music in addition to that, but I also no, I think it's just the I think it's just the noises going on around her on that again is like pov diegetic sound usage right because she's clearly having trouble like she's just come off of shock therapy she doesn't she's having trouble orienting herself um you know her brain is all scrambled and the the way that the sounds of the asylum are sort of weaving in and out of each other and creating this overlapping soundscape is very chaotic and very um disorienting for the viewer which helps put you in judy's shoes like that's clearly what she's experiencing uh blade runner does it too 
uh, to a lesser extent with all of the city noises that are happening, like when Deckard is sitting at the restaurant mm-hmm. um, eating ramen or something outside and all of the c- noise of the city is kind of playing around him. And he has like 30 seconds of quiet before someone tries to arrest him. Um, Edward James Olmos, the great Edward James Olmos. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But just this idea that you can take, you can recreate a character's audio experience um, and use that to like put the, put the viewer in the shoes of the character Mm -hmm. by recreating that um, auditory experience. Uh, particularly when it's an experience of, like, for Judy, confusion and disorientation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, steering into sort of the end of this episode, when I was uh, a teacher, a big emphasis that I put in the classroom was on visual literacy. Um, how to read a comic, how to read a cartoon, a painting, a piece of propaganda. I incorporated all of that in my classroom um, a lot, because I think it's an important skill for students to have. Um, this episode makes me think, and I also, of course, included movies, but I always went at it more from a, a visual sort of point of view. Um, this episode and all these homeworks makes me think that not only do we need to be teaching visual literacy, but also uh, what I'm going to call oral literacy. Um, this is obviously used a lot in classrooms with music, but I think that the role of sound and music and sound design in film is not really ever, ever mentioned until like college film studies classes. Um, so we're, we're all noticing things and talking about things uh, that we're noticing about the sound design, partly because we were primed to pay attention to sound for our homeworks, and also partly because the three of us have been consuming media for like 30 years now and this is uh, true and we like to consume it and we like to think about it and talk about it so we're primed to think that way um dan i i guess i'm gonna start with you what sort of things do you think would be useful for um an educator or just someone talking to a, a younger person about sound design and music in film um to mention or, or to draw uh, like students or, or kids attention to what are things that might have been useful for you or that are useful for you uh, know, what big questions would be useful <laughs> um, just paying attention to what the sound design is in conjunction with you know the the piece of work it is as a whole uh, paying attention to the inclusion or exclusion of music mm. Uh, the way voices are mixed, the the sounds in the background that are diegetic, and how all of those lend to the visuals. Like, does it... Like, is there a reason that sound needs to be there? Does it make it a better film? Does it... You know, does it accentuate what I'm looking at in any way? Mm-hmm. Like, like, is it an intentional choice, or is it just sort of, like, there? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When, and I, I'm glad that you mentioned earlier that you were, like, raised on The Sopranos, because that is certainly a film, or, a, a, hello, a long-running TV show um, that really focuses on a lot of that. I, I, I think famously there is no non-diegetic sound. I mean, there's the occasional music cue at the end, but that's about as far as it goes. Right, right. Uh, well, Martha, how about you? Anything that you would necessarily point to um, to, to get students thinking about this and, and to start teaching that oral literacy? Well, I actually think this is a really interesting question. Um, I'm thinking about all of the film adaptations of books that we read for English classes in high school mm. like that we then watched the film adaptations for. Um, and I think it would be fascinating yeah, to think about... now I'm having flashbacks about... to Great Expectations, which... Is never a good thing. Did anybody I was in actually... high school take the novels in a film class? I did not. No. I did not know that was a thing that we I had done. Oh yeah, no. The, our last, um, our last semester of senior year, I took that class, and we actually read "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep" and watched Blade Runner. 
I did take a class in college where I wrote a paper about diegetic versus non-diegetic music in the film Laura and how that was used to indicate what I believe to be the fact that the character was super, super dead um, starting from about the midpoint of the movie, hmm. uh, apropos of nothing. <laughs> but no, I'm thinking about like, because we did watch like The Crucible and we watched a film adaptation mm. of The Scarlet Letter. And I think uh, particularly for these like symbolism heavy works where we ask students to, you know, dissect the symbolism in the writing that listening to the musical cues is of the film adaptation is how the director and the screenwriter have chosen to interpret that symbolism and could be a really interesting tool to use in conjunction with uh, literary analysis. Hmm. Like what you believe the symbolism of these works to be versus this other interpretation and how that can help inform how you read it. Um, well, and you know, that could be a, an interesting tool to assist with that sort of discussion. Definitely. Um, what you just said sort of in my mind springboarded to the idea that I, I think it's always really hard to teach kids the idea of mood or tone, like in a way that it shouldn't be, it kind of is. Um, mm -hmm. but using something like that scene in Blade Runner where, with the, this, like the silent tension and then the sad saxophone is a really good thing of like, how do you feel when the saxophones are being sad? It's like, oh, I feel sad too. Uh, it's like, right. That's the mood. That's the tone. Um, and then try to take that idea and put it into text, like, like in the texture reading. Um, because the thing with visual literacy is it interplays so closely with, you know, normal literacy. Um, and I was I think... going to say, um, film, film analysis is not that different from text-based analysis. No, no, not at all. It's just sort of changing the language that you're talking about, um, getting that vocabulary down. Um, and, and I think the same is true for this, for oral literacy here as well especially because sound design is so overlooked when it comes to i think bad sound design could ultimately lead to a bad movie because it's it's not in a part of the aesthetic that one would immediately pay attention to mm -hmm. absolutely it's one of those where if it if it's done well you often don't notice it if it's done great you might notice it and if it's done bad, you definitely notice it. You absolutely notice it, yeah. yeah. We take it for granted. Yeah. Know. Like bad, like bad, better term. bad voice uh, overdubbing or ADR or anything drives, it's like one of the things I can't even with. I'll, I'll turn a movie it's, off if it's not synced up right. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I have trouble with uh, war or combat films. If they're not mixed in a way that my ears can handle, then I don't. Like there's, there's, I'm not going to get anything out of that movie because I can't get past how I either can or can't hear anything that's going on. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. All right. Well, any last comments that anyone wants to make about this before we go into our wrapping up? Uh, these, uh, these things were a trip, guys. Oh, real fast. Um, we all picked, I think, what could be considered uh, genre media. Yes. I, I mean, Mulholland Drive is sort of loosely, but it's it's not realistic. It's the genre fiction, of David Lynch. I don't think. Um, and I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts about whether or not it it's easier to talk about sound design. Not that like realistically told fiction stories are the sound design is less important, but is it maybe easier to talk about? Easier to notice. Uh, the sound of the music in things that are like more sci-fi or fantasy or even horror based. I would say yes to that, especially because it's more imperative to the overall finished product. I'll throw war movies in there too. When you're talking about um, like genre films, anything that's heightened, I think lets you play around okay. with, with heightening the sound design as well. Um, mm -hmm. Like the the sound design of a of like the imitation game or something, right? Is is not something that you're going to be focusing on because it just needs to be right. Whereas the sound design for for a, a genre piece can be more extreme because as as a genre piece, it's more extreme. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I was just kind of curious because we don't usually discuss 
too much what the homework we're picking. So I'm always fascinated when we end up picking stuff that's like in a similar vein or a similar genre. When, and the other thing you notice is that we all um, unintentionally pick things that question what is reality, what is real, what isn't. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't think that has anything I always, to do with sound design. I that was interesting. <laughs> oh, yeah, we really did, didn't we? I, I think that has to do with the fact that it's October. It's spooky. I wanted to do something spooky. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, you can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere else fine podcasts are available. Basically, however you're listening to it right now, keep listening to us there. Find Continue us there. Continue to do that. That's great. <laughs> um, yeah, please, on iTunes, everywhere else, rate and review us. That's how the magical iTunes algorithm uh, can spread us like a virus to other people. Other people can find out about us. Um you can check us out at our home on the web at homeworkpodcast.com, which we keep up to date with blog posts, classroom extensions, ways to incorporate these ideas uh, in, in newer different ways, um, and even just asides that we didn't get to during the episode. You can find us on Facebook. You can email us at show at homeworkpodcast.com. And uh, please write to us, either Facebook uh email uh, with suggestions either of topics, themes, or homework assignments, or just feedback how we're doing. Uh, if you want to be a guest, drop us a line. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at DYDYHpodcast. Um, drop us a line there as well. Dan, if people... First, do you want people to find you on the web? And if so, where would they find you on the web? Uh, you can find me on all social media platforms at Sewell Media. That is S-O-O-L Media. Uh, Twitter, Instagram. I have a Snapchat that I never use, but it does exist. Find me. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the same uh, boat with Snapchat. I forget that I have it. I yeah, have no. it exclusively for looking at photos and videos of my friend's baby. There you go. <laughs> This is proof that I, we're old. I basically have it because my toddlers like the face filters and they think it's funny. Mm. That's a good reason. Yeah, you know, they're into it. Uh, and Dan, tell our audience about your podcast that you do. Okay. Um, I run an interview podcast by the name of Soul Radio. It's basically me talking nonsense with whoever I have across from me at the time. Uh, it's a lot of rappers, a lot of comedians uh the occasional like b-list celebrity so check me out guys if you're interested yeah. uh you can find me on twitter or instagram at magical martha i am pretty active these days posting a lot of photos of books that i'm excited about and also when i can get my guinea pigs to hold still enough long enough for me to take a photo they end up on there uh, too speaking of books to be excited about the new um, Philip Pullman book is coming out or like already came out and I'm very excited for that I know it has caused much consternation in my library because none of us know what section to put it in mm. new, <laughs> new releases for the moment okay. after that okay. I got nothing for you except that Pete juvenile middle grade teen and adult fiction all have their own new releases sections Put it in three of those four. <laughs> Not like, don't put it in children. But you can put that in teen and adult. Except, and that's, probably except that that's where, that's where the original Golden Compass books are. They're in J-Fiction right now. I would just put it in every section just in case. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, we All have right. digressed hardcore. Yes, we have. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000, P-I-K-O 3000. I'm mostly talking politics, also pop culture, and uh, occasional random asides about history stuff. Um, next episode, we are going to be talking about masks. Again, yeah, apropos for Halloween. Um, the masks that people physically wear or just put over themselves, uh, how that changes people. Um, Martha, what are you assigning? Uh, my assignment for this episode, I... 
readers of our blog will find will be extremely pleased to find out that I have finally found an excuse to assign some episodes of Hannibal. Yes. So I can stop just talking about it in supplementary blog posts. Uh, I am going to be assigning three episodes from season one. Uh, episode one, uh, the... Oh, hold on. These all have names and they're important. Oh, they're all food dishes, right? Yes. They are all um, French dishes. Sorry, I, I should have had this pulled up. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad that we both independently were thinking that Hannibal would be an excellent choice for this. Um... Oh, heck yeah. Okay, so I am assigning episode one, Aperitif. Episode seven, Sorbet. And episode 10, Buffet Freud. Um, and really what will end up happening is that I am going to watch all three seasons of this show because I have no self-control and it is the best <laughs> show that has ever aired on television. Fight me. <laughs> Joining us next week uh, as our third chair will be my brother, Mark, who is assigning a um, eight-issue comic series uh, published by Vertigo in the late or early 90s. Um, it is called Enigma. It is a by uh, Peter Milligan and um, Duncan, Duncan Fergredo. Duncan Fergredo. Yeah, let's go Fergredo. Yeah. Um, okay. It, it's available on Kindle and Comicsology. Uh, Martha, were you able to find out any other thing? Oh, I, I don't know where I... to get comics. So I was going to say um, it's available on Kindle and Comicsology. Check your local library. Um, yeah, it's since you can get it pretty easily from Amazon, I imagine that most libraries or some libraries will have it on their shelf. Yep, cool. Uh, and then for myself, I am assigning the Kurt Vonnegut book, Mother Night. Um, so we got a book, a couple episodes of a TV show, and a comic trade paperback. Should be a good, well-rounded episode. Versatility. Exactly. Dan, thanks again for joining us. <laughs> thank you for having me you guys it was thank a pleasure you. yeah all right we will see you all, we will see you all on november 8th class dismissed